The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. All right, good afternoon. Uh, I want to thank Caleb for the opportunity to uh, come and speak. I want to say a couple of things. First of all, um, anytime that you are asked to speak on this subject or any area um, of expertise, you are humbled by the Lord uh, because when you get up to speak, what is happening is you are um, you're not presenting yourself as an expert, but you are standing and you are assuming that you do know what you are talking about. And I just want to say with this subject, before I get into it at all, it is any any success that anybody will ever see is based solely upon the grace of God and not some sort of methodology. And so let's go into this today and learn. Uh, let's go into this today and have humble hearts. Uh, let's be prepared to uh, jot down a few notes, and let's be prepared to apply some things. But let's not be deceived into thinking that if I plug this formula into my child or children, that it's going to result in whatever Pastor Ed said it does or did for him or didn't do for them, because this is all based upon the grace of God. So with that in mind, we need to pray and we need to ask for the grace of God. So please pray with me this afternoon. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. Thank you, Lord, that they have it upon their hearts to come and spend a Saturday so that they can learn how to love and care for the children that you have given them. Lord, I pray that you would impress deeply upon our hearts that the children that we do have are children that you have given to us. They are yours, they belong to you, and this is our stewardship, which we gladly accept. But Lord, they are not our children. Uh, Lord, these are your children. And so, Lord, please help us to care for your children. I pray, dear Lord, that as the hour is now uh, immediately following lunch, it is very, very difficult, uh, Lord, physically to track uh, with someone during this hour. I know that, Lord, from experience. And so I pray that you would give a special measure of grace to everyone today to be attentive and to be willing to listen and to learn um, even though some may be drowsy. Father, I want to pray for myself right now. I pray that I will speak with humility and that I will, um, Lord, not come across as an expert, Lord, but I pray that I will come across as a servant uh, who has learned some things which you have taught, which I am going to convey to these dear people. I pray, dear Lord, that my presentation would be filled with grace, uh, Lord, that I would present it in a gracious way. Uh, I pray that you would give me your grace and gift me with your grace, Lord, to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to pray, dear God, that most of all, you would give us grace to apply these things, uh, Lord, for uh, both the willing and the doing comes from you. And so, Lord, we call out to you, we bow before you, and we ask you, Lord, to help us. We, we pray because we need help. Uh, Lord, we need help today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, it is a verse that you're very familiar with. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Mark Twain said this, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. That's more than just a humorous quote. It's a profound truth, and that is that wise parents do not, do not perform in order to gain the applause of their immature, foolish children. Let me say that again. 
wise parents do not perform in order to gain the applause of their immature and foolish children. They do what they do because they know what they do. They do what they know to be true and right. And in time, their children will come to the same conclusion. And that's why Solomon says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And what Solomon and Samuel Clemens assume from this is that fathers and parents know what is good. They know what is right. They know what is wise. They know the way to go. The problem with 21st century America is we can make no such assumption. So with that in mind, what I would like to do for you in the next two sessions, uh, four and four, I would like to give you eight actions to consider as you seek to raise your children in the way that they should go. But before I get to the first four, which we're going to cover in this session, I want to give a few disclaimers. First of all, this is not an exhaustive list. Um, In other words, there is nothing about this list um, which will teach your children about money or health or sex or sports or education or household skills or people skills or the importance of uh, choosing a godly mate. There's not going to be anything in this list about that. Those are all useful items that every child needs to learn from his or her parents, but that is not on my list today. This list that I'm going to give you is very personal and it is very subjective. And so I chose these eight topics by asking myself, what are some of, not all of, but what are some of the philosophical building blocks upon which Anna and I have raised our family and are still raising them? Uh, That's what you're going to hear today. Again, not only is it not an exhaustive list or a comprehensive list, but I am very convinced that it's not even the best list. In other words, the eight things that I'm going to tell you, I'm very confident they are not even the best things. It is simply my list. Now, that is not to say that I am preaching myself. I am not preaching myself. This is not to say that we arrive at truth through personal experience. We do not. We arrive at truth through the word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. But it is to say that I'm not going to be speaking from theory or from some sort of an idealistic speculation of, well, someone told me if, this, if you do this, then that might happen. This is not a formula that I drew up in a laboratory. Uh, These are subjects to which I can address from personal actual experience. However, I do not wish to imply that I have mastered these items and speaking to a crowd of people of whom uh, I know most of you, uh, you know, because you know the more children, that that is very true. I would even go so far as to say, that many of the things that I have learned and that I'm going to share with you, I have learned from defeat, sin, and failure. Um, Hard Knocks is a school with a good reputation. I have a PhD from the school of Hard Knocks, and my kids can give you testimony of my deficiencies. So this is not something that I have primarily learned through success, Most of the things that I'm going to talk about are things that I have learned through failure. Furthermore, uh, back to my children, I am not going to set them before you today as the product of what these eight points will produce as if this were some sort of a recipe. I'm going to tell you a couple of things right now which will both humble you and discourage you. First of all, to humble you, I have met countless parents who are much better parents than I am, better dads than I am in every way, more godly, more consistent, wiser, just better put together than I am in every way. As far as I can see, they did everything correctly, or at least they did everything better than I did, and they did it in line with the scriptures, and for some reason, their children turned out to be weird and ungodly and dishonest and failures. Okay, I I have seen it. Great parents that I have seen whose kids did not turn out well. On the other hand, 
I have seen some really horrible parents who did everything wrong, everything against the scriptures. You, you would look at the decisions that they made and say, I pity those poor children, and doggone it, their kids turned out to be productive, polite, responsible, godly, Christ-loving citizens. And so at the end of the day, and this is what I said at the outset and which I hopefully included in my prayer, everything excluding nothing, everything that I'm going to tell you is 100% dependent upon the grace of God. So please do not think that I am presenting you with some kind of a formula for success which comes with a money-back guarantee. It does not. That does not mean that you are not responsible for what you do. You are. But it does mean that you cannot contribute to the success or the failure of your... I'm sorry. It it does mean, okay, that you can contribute to the success or failure of your children and that you will, but at the end of the day, everything is dependent upon the sovereign mercy of God 100%. So, for those of you right now who are patting yourself on the back uh, because you have raised or you are in the process of raising really polite, obedient, godly children, I want to tell you, beware and be humble because God hates that attitude. And every time that I, within the secrecy of my own heart, have looked at one of the more kids and I have hurt my arm because I was patting myself on the back at what wonderful kids I had raised, they will turn around and do something to totally embarrass you. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs sixteen eighteen. I also want to say to those of you who today came to this conference because you are discouraged, because everything that you are trying is not working, and you're constantly asking yourself, where did I go wrong? I am such a failure. I, I, I just look at my kids, and they're not like other kids, and they're not, they're not turning out the way that other kids are. And you say to yourself, where have I failed? I just want to tell you that the answer might be nowhere. Maybe you have done everything right, and please know that your children are responsible for their own actions. The soul that sins shall surely die. So, take that courage and take that humility. We are all at God's mercy, Um, and even if you were or are a dreadful parent, I want to tell you that the grace of God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And it's not ultimately up to you but you are called to be faithful. Again, these are personal observations. This is how the Moore family operates. So having said that, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to look at these things and say to yourself, well, since the Moore family does that or did that, this is what we need to do. Your family is your family. And that is not to say that you do everything right, but it is to say that your family is unique. So do not try to be another family. I would say that one of the greatest mistakes, and it's not on my list, but one of the greatest mistakes that I ever made in parenting is that I looked at families who were doing a good job and I tried to become that family. Do not do that. You are not the Moors. You are not the Kardashians, you are not the Mannings, you're not the Kennedys, you're not the Osmonds, you are not the Manson family. You are your own family. And and you you have to listen to these points with a very discerning ear and apply them by grace to where you are. And if they relate to where you are at this time, then put them into practice. But if they are not, then let them pass. Now, You'll notice that each one of these points begins with the letter or begins with the word use. Uh, that is because of James one twenty two. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, these points are not philosophical. Uh, they're not even terribly theological. I'm assuming a lot based upon the church that you have here and the elders that you have here that you have a good theology and that you have a good philosophy of parenting. This is just like straight to the point, 
practical stuff which you can just start to do immediately. So it is pretty much from beginning to end all by way of application. You're also going to notice that each of the points are sentences which are intentionally convoluted and probably grammatically incorrect. And the reason they are that way is so that, if you take notes, um, they are descriptive enough in and of themselves that if you just meditate on the words, you will be able to act upon them immediately. You don't even need for me to preach the points. But I will, but you don't need me to. So, in no logical order, except for number eight, which is the most important one, here are my eight points, and number one is this. Use expressive words with obnoxious frequency to communicate love. Use expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. In other words, talk with your kids all the time, and as you do, let there be no doubt in their minds that you absolutely adore them. Tell your kids all the time, verbally, that you love them. It is assumed by some, and this is a really, really bad assumption. Let's use God, our Heavenly Father, as our example, for He is the best parent. In His relationship with His only begotten Son, He verbally, publicly, unashamedly said, on two different occasions, out of heaven, speaking to his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He said this at Christ's baptism and he said it again on the Mount of Transfiguration. In God's relationship with us, he communicates with words. Now the Bible is 1189 chapters and he leaves no doubt that he loves us. I think if you're a Christian, you, you, can't, you can't look to your father in heaven and say, I, I can look around, I can see what he gives me, I, 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 have, I have food, he gives me air to breathe, he's been kind to me in providence, he's put joy in my heart, I'm pretty sure that he, that he loves me, um, uh, he, he, he gave his son, that, what, what greater sacrifice could there be than that, I'm, I, I can draw the conclusion that he loves me, yes, and that must be there, and there must be actions. The actions have to back the words. But let's consider our Heavenly Father over and over and over again. He tells us that He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And First John 3.11, Beloved, or I'm sorry, behold what manner of love the Father has shown to us that we should be called the sons of God. And God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is love. He loves His kids. He tells us all the time. And I can't tell you the number of people who have said one of the following things to me. First of all, they've said... I'm pretty sure my parents loved me, and this usually comes in a child speaking about their father. I'm pretty sure my father loved me, but he never told me. Um, I can remember, and I think some of you may have even been at the church when uh, Elizabeth Lippert used to be a member there. Maybe no one here was there, but she was she was the quintessential church lady. She was there all the time. Uh, she was a widow. Her husband died in 1972, and she really didn't do anything for the rest of her life except commit her life to serving North Shore Baptist Church. And one of, one of, one of my early sermons at North Shore Baptist Church, I pulled my young son Parker up onto the platform to make the illustration of, of, of love I forget the exact text that I was preaching from, but I just pulled Parker up and I looked at him and I said, Parker, I want to say to you in front of all of these people that I love you and that I am glad that you are my son. I am glad that God has allowed you to come and live with us. I adore you. I, I, your father loves you. If this is being recorded right now, I want it to be known forever to everyone and I want you to know that I love you. And then I said, go, go sit down. 
and I preached the rest of the sermon, and that was sort of just one illustration. I don't even know that it was the main point of the sermon. And Elizabeth Lippert shakes my hand at the door on the way out, and here's this woman near the age of 90, and there are tears in her eyes, and she said, when you brought that boy up on that platform and told him that you loved him, that broke my heart. She said, for my mother and my father never once ever told me that they loved me. Never said it once. And my question is, why not? So some of the answers that I hear are, well, that's old school. Uh, and my, my, you know, we, we're from a different culture or we're raised at a different time or I'm just not terribly expression. To which I would say old school is bad and wrong and hurtful and ungodly. And being quiet or being reserved is sinful and destructive when it comes to expressing love. Furthermore, I hear this all the time. I hear, and this is crazy the number of times that I hear this when I'm counseling people. They tell me that what they are striving to do is to please their father or to please their parents. And everything that I'm doing is I just want my dad to tell me that he's proud of me. I just want him to tell me that I'm doing a good job. And so what drives me, what motivates me in life is just to, even though I hate the old man, I really want him to to tell me that he loves me. And I really want him to tell me that I'm doing a good job. And I would say... Why would you ever want to put your children in a position where there is any doubt whatsoever? Why not just say, hey, I don't know that I've ever said this to you before. Maybe I have said it before. Maybe I know that I've said it before. But just so we are clear, I want you to know that I am proud of you and that I do love you and that you are acceptable to me and there is not a thing in the world that you need to do to earn my love or to gain my affection. I am pleased with you and then say it again tomorrow and say some form of it every day and if your kids feel like they don't know how you feel about them you can really put this to an end like this is <laughs> this is not what i am giving you by way of application right now is not is not difficult it can be accomplished very easily with obnoxious frequency communicate love I know most of you here, and I know that I have used this illustration before, and you have heard it, and so I, 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 but I want to say it again, and this is in reference to my own father. And the reason I say this is because my dad never had a dad. My dad's dad left him when my dad was six months old. And in 1927, in the United States of America, people didn't get divorced. So my dad was the only kid who walked around his neighborhood without a dad. Never had a dad, but yet he was a great dad. And what my dad would do, um, which was so helpful to me and to my brother and to my sisters, is that uh, every day he would tell us that he loved us. Every night he would come in to our bedroom and he would pray for us and 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 quite frequently what he would do is when we would be walking across the room he'd say you get over here come here stand right here now look at me i want you to know that i love you and that i'm pleased with you do you understand me do you got do you have that you got it all right now get out of here and and it was like this and, and do, do you know the comfort that it, the, and the security that a kid feels if it's just like, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pretty big screw up and I've got a lot of people that I know are against me and they probably should be against me based upon my behavior. But my dad loves me. And and again, my mother was was this way, too. Um, so. And I just want to say this, too. This is not a one time speech. This is not like we're going to sit down and like, you know, have the sex talk or something, you know, which this is this is an everyday thing. Um, I, I'm not even going to go there. Um, <clears throat> but 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 whether your kids are five or whether your kids are 50, express your love to them. So that's number one. Number two. 
use creative actions with enthusiastic spontaneity in order to create memories. Use creative actions with enthusiastic spontaneity in order to create memories. Or if you just want to shorten it, have fun. Have fun. Uh, I almost omitted this point because it doesn't seem terribly spiritual. Now, this is not a license to shrink from responsibility or hard work, but it is a call for delight, for joy, for laughter, for fun in the context of the family. Ecclesiastes 3, 4. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to dance. And the home and the family is the place where this should be seen the most. So moving from the spiritual or the eternal to the temporal, please consider this. If heaven is our home and it is a place of unspeakable joy, should we not model for our children joy in the home, the family, uh, and which are pictures of the gospel and pictures of heaven? When the emphasis of raising kids to be godly such that they will not get in trouble or run with a dangerous crowd or to prohibit them from activities, it is a defense methodology and it doesn't work. Do you understand what I'm saying? If my goal is just that my kids don't run with the wrong crowd and that they become responsible and that they behave themselves properly, which you need to do all of those things, but if that is the emphasis, it's, it's not going to work. You should and you must prohibit them from being in certain places and with certain people and doing certain things. There were some kids at North Shore Baptist Church whose were, were, parents were members of our church and I would say to my sons, do not go near them. Do not go near them. They are bad news. I understand that you need to keep your children from things that are bad. That is a given. But that is not the strategy nor the emphasis. The strategy is, hey, gang, I am excited about this family, and this is going to be the place to be. We, as a family, are going to have fun, and we are going to form traditions. And our wacky family has a million of them, and the only reason we do them is because we feel it builds unity. So on the 4th of July, we all wear the same silly $5 t-shirts that we get at uh, Old Navy and we go to Central Park. Uh, We had a ritual, like a fun ritual of family devotions where we would sit and do Bible reading together. Um, uh, We would sit around the table and we would say just with spontaneity, okay, tonight is going to be craft night, and we are going to we're going to work on an art project together. One of my most favorite favorite things that we ever did is just in a spontaneous way, we would say, "All right, no plans tonight. It's a week before Christmas. Everybody, hop in the van. We as a family are going Christmas caroling, and we're going to go around to." the families in the church that are close by and we're just going to sing for them tonight. Or we would, um, uh, one of our other favorite things that we would do is we would say, okay, guys, tonight is restaurant night. Guys wear suits. Girls wear nice dresses. Okay, Parker, you're cooking. Charlie, you're the maitre d'. All right, Savannah, make up a menu. Madison, set the table. Mom and dad, we are the customers. We're going to come in. We're going to order. And we're all going to have a formal dinner together in the man, what I wouldn't give to go back and do that again. But we're just going to attempt to have fun. And guess what? Sometimes it falls flat on its face. Sometimes the kids are bored. Sometimes the kids are embarrassed when their friends find out what you're doing. But most of the time, the effort itself tells your kids, wow, mom and dad really think that this family is important. The night before opening day, we as a family would always watch the the movie Field of Dreams, a baseball movie. Um, And so our kids now live in several different states, uh, New Jersey, Georgia, Kentucky, uh, Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, soon to be Pennsylvania, and and of course New York. And wherever we are, the night before opening day, we uh, text one another and say, all right, you're getting ready to start the movie now. I mean... 
the script never changes. It's always the same movie. But it is a family tradition. Um, and, I mean, you don't need a lot of money to do these things. You just need to try to be creative. Uh, one of the things I think which makes my wife the most angry is when I'll say, okay, it's adventure night. Everybody go get in the van. Close your eyes. I'm going to drive you somewhere, and I'm not going to tell you where, where I'm going to drive you. And she actually does get sick from the, the motion of the car, and I've, I'll drive them to some neighborhood in Brooklyn, and we'll just walk around for an hour and get in the car and, and come home. But they're guessing, well, where are we? Well, I think we're... You know, we're we're in Flushing. No, we're not in Flushing. We're in Whitestone. No, we're on a highway. And I don't know. It, it doesn't. All it costs is the gasoline and a slice of pizza when you get where you're going. It doesn't have to be Disney World. It doesn't have to be Six Flags. It it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Um, spending a lot of time on this, but uh, you are going to. I, I say this because you are going to try to create memories. You're going to be glad that you did it, and it's going to take some creativity because when it comes time for your kids to leave home, they're going to look back with fond memories and say, at least my parents tried. Um, and, and just as a side note, my father always said this to me, and I will tell you that this, that this has always been the truth. I don't know how he knew this, but this was always true. He said, Eddie boy, the best things that you will ever do in life are not planned. They are not, they do not cost a lot of money. You were not looking for them. They just sort of came in the process of, of everyday life. Um, but just have an awareness that these, of the, when these moments are happening and, and then make a big deal out of it. Several years ago, um, <laughs> I mean, pick any year you want. When the Mets were really bad, uh, they, I, I had taken my kids to, to a game, and the Mets used to have a backup catcher uh, by the name of Castro. And one night, lo and behold, Castro hit a three-run homer in the bottom of the eighth inning to give the Mets a win. My, my kids were small, and so after it was over, we went to... Uh, lemon ice king, uh, just to uh, just to celebrate or for, for whatever reason, and I'm I'm there and I never I, it seems like I never get something as right as I got it this night, um, but here were my sons, both of them were small, and and we were that was our World Series, okay? It wasn't it it, it never gets good for us, and. And as we're there, someone comes up and they're ordering their lemon ice and they're standing right beside me. And I said to the guy, I said, not tonight, pal. Nope. This one's on me. Okay. <laughs> he was a stranger. And, and, and the kids are going, well, why, dad? I said, because tonight is a great night. Tonight, our team won. And so it cost me, what, a dollar seventy-five or whatever. But what I was trying to communicate to the boys was, this is important. We are together, and we are having a good time tonight. And by this tiny little expression, I was able to communicate to the boys, I am happy to be with you. We are together. We are having a good time. And let this time be marked. Here's my point. Mom and Dad, you set the pace and make your home a place of delight and joy and laughter and tradition and fun and controlled craziness and singing. Last week, I was with the Fujiwara family. Um, and, and recently, Harry Fujiwara has come under the conviction that it is important during family devotions that the family sing together. I don't know if you've ever heard Harry sing. Uh, I mean, he's, I'm, he, he has other gifts. Uh, but as I sat around and I looked at the Fujiwara children as we, we, we sat around in the little house that had been rented, and, and the adults were all singing the hymns and singing the choruses. The Fujiwara children were joining in. They knew the words to the song. They were rejoicing as well. Singing and making melody in your heart is such, such a delightful thing in the family. And I think that you can get more mileage out of one family wrestling match on the, on the mattress than you can out of spending 
three or four hundred dollars to go to to Six Flags or to to Disney World or wherever you're going to go. So, uh, and and I'll just say this: I think that the death sentence of the American family is when every person is permitted to go to their own corner of the house. And let me just say this. You can all be in the same room at the same time and still be in your own corner of the house because the phone causes you to be in a universe by yourself. I recently was rebuked by one of my children who came to me and said, Dad, you do not know how often you look at your phone. You are constantly looking at it. And when you are with whoever it is you're with on your phone, he said, I know you're doing ministry. But he said, he said, do you, do you understand that's taking time away from us? And so you can all say, hey, we're all going to be in the car together. We're all going to be at the restaurant together. Watch this the next time you go to a restaurant. Look at a family or even for crying out loud, look at a couple. They will be sitting across the table from one another, but they will be not talking to one another. Being on the phone or allowing your children to be on the phone when the family is together is the death sentence of the American family. I, I, again, this was not a terribly spiritual point, but I will tell you this. There is a time to laugh, and you have to put an effort into this, and you will not regret having done it. Here is number three. Use fervent prayer with with tenacious persistence in order to convey humility. Number three, use fervent prayer with tenacious persistence in order to convey humility. It's very simple. Humble people pray and proud people don't. You want humble children, therefore you must be humble, therefore you must pray. And so, pray with them and pray for them and teach them to pray. When a crisis arises, you need to tell the whole family, stop. We are now going to pray. My father, every time the car would take off, he would pray. We need to learn how to pray for the sick, to pray for wisdom, to pray James 1.15. It is very important to teach your children, hey, I don't know what we're supposed to do in this situation, but the Lord knows. Let's, let's bow right now and ask God for prayer. I think you should pray for your children before you, uh, I'm sorry, after you spank them. Um, you should pray for them at bedtime. Uh, you should pray, um, I, I mean, when anything arises, if there is a culture of prayer, it's going to, it's going to influence your children toward humility. And I think it's okay that you pray before your meals, but that's not enough. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. And James 5.16 says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's not just a matter of demonstrating humility, but it's actually speaking to the God of the universe and calling on him. You understand what I'm saying? We're not praying in front of our kids so that our kids will think that we are humble so that we will make them humble. When you are praying, you are primarily talking to God and you're asking for help. My father would uh, sometimes be asked to go speak different places, um, and and he wasn't really a preacher, but he would he would be asked to fill pulpits different times or speak at banquets. And what my father would do is he would he would go into the men's room wherever wherever he was speaking, and and he would get down on the floor, and he would. And he would put his face on the floor and he would pray, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Fill me, Holy Spirit. Please help me tonight as I preach or as I speak to these people. And I would see my dad doing this time after time after time. And and, and look, it's, it's, a, it's a picture in my mind that this was a guy who was confident enough to get up and speak, but he was also humble enough to go before the Lord. Prayer is the means that God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. And so cry out to God as if you were dependent upon him because you are. Um, I can remember how our family was drawn together back in 1976 when my brother had cancer. Um, and, And it wasn't something that was foreign to us when he got cancer that we would be praying because we had been praying all along. And then pray for your children's salvation when you are with them. 
and allow them to pray for their own salvation when you are asking them to pray. Dear God in heaven, I pray for Charlie. God, I pray that you would save him. I pray, Lord, that you would protect him. I pray that you would give him a good wife. I pray, Lord, you'd keep him from evil. And now, Charlie, you pray. Lord, please, I pray one day that you will save me. Let the kids know in as you're praying with them and praying for them that salvation is of utmost importance. Not just the stuff that we need, but also communion with God. Which brings me to my final point in this session, and that is use precious time with strategic urgency to minimize regrets. Use precious time with strategic urgency in order to minimize regrets. If you've never watched a football game with me, you, you don't want to watch a football game with me because I am totally into the game. And I am constantly baffled, and I do not understand why this happens, that people do not understand that football is a timed game. And it appears as though the coaches and the quarterbacks do not understand this, and that every second is precious. And so you need to get the ball back, all right? And there's a minute left in the game, and you still have one time out, and it's third down, and they run the ball. I am thinking to myself as I'm watching the game, when the tackle is made, the moment that the ball hits the ground, time out, time out, time out, and the, the runner falls, and one of the, one of the players you know, comes over, and, he, and he's, he's shuffling over to the ref, and I'm like, time out, time out, time out, time out right now, time out, time out, time out, time out, now, time out. And meanwhile, the seconds are ticking away, and you're not going to get those seconds back. I want you to know that life is a timed game. Moses writes in Psalm 90 verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that's talking about the span of an entire life. So if that is the span of an entire life, what time do you have with your kids? It is shorter than that. If life is a vapor... How much shorter is the time that you have with your kids? Furthermore, hear the argument, how much shorter is the time that you will actually have an influence on your kids? For you do not, even though you always have your kids with you, always have time, T-I-M-E, time to be influential. Life is a vapor. Parenting years are going by before you know it. And the time that you actually have is microscopic. It is a timed game. So we homeschooled our kids. <clears throat> Some people should not homeschool. I am not here today to advocate homeschooling as the end-all, be-all for everyone. We chose to do it primarily for one reason. Not because we were afraid of the public schools, although there was much to be afraid of, and not because we thought our kids would get a better education by being homeschooled. Truth of the matter is, they probably didn't. I mean, you know, my kid comes home with a C and, you know, good job. You know, that's all right, better than your dad, you know. So, so, so we, we didn't stress education as much as we should have. We didn't even homeschool them primarily to keep them from the influence of bad kids. The primary reason why we did it is because we liked spending time with them. And we knew that that time was going to be very short. And we wanted to be with them as much as possible. Again, second time, let me repeat, not everybody should homeschool. But Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. We just wanted to spend time with them. So here we are, April 2018. I have a daughter. She is our last one. Madison. May, June, July. Early in August, she'll be gone. 
Wow. I have a picture that we took yesterday. Yesterday. With Madison, she was a few hours old, and Mike Neglia and Franny standing around the bed where my wife had just given birth back in 2000. That was yesterday. Time is flying. And the time that you have with your children, don't say to yourself, well, we've got plenty of time to get around to this stuff. You are going to wake up tomorrow, tomorrow, and they will be gone. And if you do not capitalize on the moments, you're going to wake up one morning and if you were at my daughter Savannah's wedding, you know that I emphasized one of the songs there from Fiddler on the Roof. Is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? I don't remember growing older. When did they? When did she get to be a beauty? When did he grow to be so tall? Wasn't it yesterday they were small? Sunrise, sunset, swiftly flow the days. So, it's 1973. I just finished the sixth grade. I went on vacation with my parents to St. Petersburg, Florida. We stayed in a motel on 4th Street called the Empress. The maid's name was Beulah Snow. Um, these things I remember because we had never been anywhere or gone anywhere. So, so the one time we went, I remember exactly what was, was going on. There were two beds in this motel. We were there for a week in June of 1973. My mother and my father were sleeping in one bed. I was in the other bed. I was 12 years old and for no, like no reason, just it, it meant just nothing to me. I said to my dad, I said, Hey, Dad, you want to come sleep in the bed with me tonight? And my dad had a way of not just doing things, but of explaining things. And he said, Eddie boy, you bet your life I want to come spend the night in the bed with you. I'm going to be happy to come get in that bed with you. And I'm going to tell you why I want to get in that bed with you. Because the day is coming very, very quickly when you're not going to want your old man to sleep in the bed with you. And so while you're still a child and you want me to, I'll be happy to do it. Didn't think a thing of it. I mean, just it, it honestly, it wasn't like, wow, this is just one of those hallmark moments. No, he, I, I, I'm not grasping it at age 12. I just remember he gets from one bed into another. 2002. I take my son Parker to Cooperstown in the for a one-day trip, see the Baseball Hall of Fame in the off-season where there were hotel rooms everywhere. There was no one in Cooperstown. And so we got this hotel room that was... So you would walk in and there was a bedroom with two beds and then there was another bedroom with two beds and then there was a kitchenette and then there was another bedroom. And I think it was like... 45 bucks a night. And here were these three bedrooms and a kitchenette. And Parker walks in. He's 12 years old, same age as me. And he says, wow, we can each have our own room. I said, yeah, this is great. And so we go see the Baseball Hall of Fame. We go out to eat. We come back. We do our devotions. And he says, hey, Dad, can we can we both stay in the same room? I said, sure. And so we're sitting there. <laughs> You know, watching a television program, we turn off the lights. We're, we're, you know, it's a good night, buddy. Love you. <laughs> and so I'm in one bed. He's in the other. And he says, hey, Dad, <laughs> do you mind if I get in the bed with you? I said, I would love it if you got in the bed with me. And I'll tell you why I would love it if you got in the bed with me. Because the day is fast coming when you're not going to want to get in the bed with your old man. And so come on, get in the bed with me. And he, again, didn't understand the, the, the significance of it, that we're both at the same age when this both happened to us. He didn't even, I think, know that story. But the point is, you have a... Not, not that the world was changed or, or that, you know, 
multitudes of people were saved because my dad got in bed with me or because Parker got in bed with me. That, 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 I'm, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you have a tiny sliver. The clock is running. Call time out. You've got a tiny opportunity to make the most of, op- of every opportunity. And you look at your kids and they are small. You are going to turn around and they are going to be gone. And if not gone literally, gone emotionally. And the sad fact of the matter is, kids that are 12 in 2018 are a lot older than kids that were 12 in 2002. And kids that were 12 in 2002 are a lot older than kids that were 12 in 1973. And the world's doing everything to make them grow up as fast as they can and society is doing everything they can to separate families and 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 it is so much more challenging now what with telephones and with with everything that's happening uh in our lives and we're so busy you have so few hours and regrets of wasted time and misused time are bitter and so let me give you another story this one wasn't quite as happy so if you've ever been in our house upstairs, our bedroom is at the end of the hall and Charlie's room was at the right beside ours on the left. And I can't tell you the number of times as I would walk by, Charlie would say, hey, Dad, you want to you play G.I. Joe's? You want to play soldiers? And I would say, Charlie, I do. I really do. But I've got an elders meeting. Or Charlie, I really do. But so-and-so, I've got to go see her in the hospital. Or Charlie, I'm sorry. I'm behind this week. I have to study. I've got to get ready for my sermon. Charlie, I'm going to play. We are going to do that. We're going to, we're, we're going to do it. And it would just be time after time. No hurt feelings or anything. Just always busy. Just always too busy. And the sadness came when Charlie, when I walked by one day, I said, Charlie, hey, you want to, you want to play with those G.I. Joes? You want to play soldiers? And he said, sure, Dad. And pulled the, the bin out from under the bed and had dust all over the lid we started to play, and he said, uh, you know, Dad, I, I don't really play with these anymore. And I just thought, what I would give for a time machine just to go back to be able to take advantage of that opportunity. And I realize that this is a, this is a, this is a mushy point. This is a sentimental point. But, but I'm, I'm making a scriptural point by saying, redeem the time because the days are evil. You want to influence and to impact your children as much as possible. I'm just simply telling you tonight or today, you've got a short period of time to do that. Uh, and so for the glory of God, don't say, you know, we're going to do it tomorrow because in a lot of cases, tomorrow doesn't come. So... I guess, Caleb, we take a break now, and then uh, and then when do we come back together? Or you got some announcements? Okay. Um, very briefly, uh, before we provide, we're going to take about a ten-minute break. Uh, but before we do, I.